Aaron Pilgrim and his guide Virgil seem to have escaped those demons who ended up down in the boiling pitch with others trying to rescue them, but it ain't over yet. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk. Oh, do I say this enough? We slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Inferno, the first canticle of three. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. We're in Inferno. We're at Canto 23, so way down. We're in lower hell at this point. The eighth circle, the giant landscape of fraud, which is made up of ten. Oh, I just told you the plot. 10 evil pouches <laughs> we've been in the fifth and we're kind of getting toward the sixth and in this passage we'll actually get into the sixth pouch it's a long passage we're going to go lines four through 57 i think it's important to take this thing at a big sprint so this may be a slightly longer episode of the podcast walking with tante sorry about that you can always break it up into pieces uh, but i think this passage kind of needs to be done as a giant whole i played with breaking it and i just couldn't make it make much sense because you really have to see the whole thing happen in front of you here we are the pilgrim and his guide have broken away they've walked quietly away down the embankment toward alongside i shouldn't say toward parallel to the sixth evil pouch they're trying to get away from these demons and will they well that's where we are There's that fable by Aesop, I couldn't help but think of it because of this wrestling match, the one where he talks about the frog and the mouse, which are not much different than right now and right away when you compare one case with the other, especially if we bring together the beginning and the end with close inspection. And just as one notion bursts out of another, so another one was born from that one at which my first fear got doubled. I thought, because of us, those demons have been fooled with injuries and ridicule, which means they must feel the same toward us. If their bad intentions get wound into a hank along with anger, they're going to come at us even more cruelly than a dog's jaws bite down on a rabbit. At that, I felt a hair with fear bristle all over my scalp. I kept looking behind us when I said, Master, unless you can pretty quickly hide the two of us, I'm freaking out about those evil claws. They must be right behind us. In fact, I imagine them so well that I can hear them on the way. And he, if I were crafted from leaded glass... I would not mirror your outward appearance any faster than I feel your state of mind. Just now, your thoughts have joined up with mine, the self-same attitude and look, so that I've bound everything up into a single council. If it turns out that the slope on our right lets us get down into the next pouch, we can get away from this imagined hunt. He hadn't finished detailing a plan like that when I saw them coming at us with their wings wide open, closing in fast with the intent to grab us. My master quickly picked me up like a mother who wakes up at the brouhaha, sees the flames right at hand, picks up her son, and gets out without a moment's hesitation, caring more for him than herself to the extent that she doesn't even put on a shift. So Virgil leapt from the rough edge of the cliff and started to slide down the slope on his back, the side that 
formed the closer wall of the next pouch. Water hasn't ever flowed any faster through a sluice as it rushes from a stream to turn the paddles of a mill's grinding wheel than my master went flailing down that bank, still holding me to his chest, not as if I were a fellow traveler, but his son. The moment his feet touched the floor of the chasm, there were the demons on the ridge above us. But there was no need to gasp out loud, because high providence, which had made them the ministers of the fifth ditch, takes away the power of ever leaving it. And so they get away from those demons who indeed have found them, have run along the bank, have tried to catch them. Virgil picks up Dante. <laughs> we got that corporeal problem again. We're not even going to touch it. Virgil picks up Dante and down they go, down the side of the bank into the bottom of the next evil pouch. This is a complicated passage. You could hear it as I read it. It's got lots of weird bits in it, lots of metal literary bits, and starts out with Aesop. Let's start there. There's that fable. The passage begins in my translation of it, my English translation, which by the way, you can see on my website, markscarborough.com. There's that fable by Aesop. I couldn't help but think of it because of this wrestling match, the one where he talks about the frog and the mouse. What is our poet talking about? Well, he's talking about a fable that is attributed to Aesop. We should note that this fable is not an Aesop fable, but there's probably not any way that Dante would have known that. He probably knows it through a Carolingian collection of fables, or he might know it from an English collection of some Aesop and some other fables titled Romulus, written in England, but in Latin. He might know it from that. There's also a version of this fable in Marie de France in her writings. Um, again, it's not actually an Aesop fable, but Dante probably doesn't know that. He would see it as an Aesop fable. In fact, some uh, Dantistas claim that this fable that I'm about to tell you was part of a schoolboy's curriculum to read and was then in those schoolboy school curriculum books attributed to Aesop. The fable is is that a mouse is standing on the bank of a river and there's a frog in the river and the mouse says, you know, I'd like to get across to the other side and I can't swim. So how do I get across? And the frog says, don't worry, just here, I'll tie a string around you and then I'll swim to the other side and pull you along and you can get there. Ta-da, done. Okay, great. So they do that. The frog sets out across the river and immediately takes a dive. He takes a dive down, pulling the mouse on the string with him to drown it in order to eat it. But in all this fracas as the mouse struggles and as down they go, a hawk or a falcon flying overhead sees this happening, swoops down, grabs them, and eats them both. Or in the Marie de France version, the mouse gets away, but the frog gets eaten. The bird of prey lets the mouse go because the bird of prey says, oh, you're so small, you know, and I, I don't need to eat you. I got this big frog to eat, <laughs> to eat. In the Marie de France version, that's what happens. But in the version Dante knows, probably both the frog and the mouse get consumed. So what's going on here? Well, think it through for a second. There are these three players. There's a mouse, a frog, and a hawk. And we kind of have to make sense of them given the past 
passage around us. So who could they be? The early commentators see the frog as the barrator. So the frog is the one who is the trickster, who jumps into the pitch to escape the demons. The mouse would then somehow be perhaps Harlequin, who goes after him or is pulled along on a string, metaphoric string perhaps, toward him. And so Frost Trampler or Calcabrina would be the hawk that swoops down. I've always thought that was a piss poor interpretation if I can kick the old commentators that bad because Calcabrina doesn't eat Harlequin and Calcabrina doesn't get the barrator who jumps in and eats him. He doesn't eat them both. It's a little funky. And also Harlequin doesn't go into the pitch. He swerves up before he hits it. That doesn't quite make sense. A few of the commentators reverse it all around and they make the demons, both the frog and the falcon or the hawk, the bird of prey, and the mouse then is our barrator. But in all the fables, or most of them, the mouse gets consumed or at least pulled under, but that's our barrator gets away. None of that makes any sense. Let's go back to the players again. There may be another way to see it. There is a frog, a mouse, and a falcon. So who could they possibly be? Well, if you just think it through, the frog would be the leader, the one trying to lead you through, and that would be Virgil. So Virgil is the one who knows how to cross the river. Dante would be the mouse who is being led along. And, of course, the hawk swooping down to kill them both would be the demons who Dante the Pilgrim is now afraid are going to come after them, which, in fact, they do come after them. But notice something weird about what I just told you. And this wasn't pointed out until Sam Geiler in 1972 in an essay in Dante Studies, an article that Geiler wrote called Virgil the Hypocrite. Virgil, then, would be in the place of the deceitful frog. It's not very complimentary to Virgil if this interpretation holds. Now, I should tell you that there are other ways to look at this. And in the history of commentary, there have been ways to try to excuse the frog's actions or there have been ways to try to say that the frog represents some of the demons, the mouse is Dante and Virgil, and the hawk that eventually swoops down and gets them are the rest of the demons. To me, that doesn't make any sense. I like Geiler's interpretation because I think there are subtle hints throughout this passage that Virgil is coming in for both ridicule and praise. This is the passage in which Virgil is called Dante's mother, not just his father, but his mother. And yet at the same time, I think there's even irony in that. We'll talk about it. But it's an interesting fable to have linked here to them. Dante seems, at least in my interpretation, to be blaming Virgil somewhat or to be putting Virgil in the position of the deceitful frog that can get them both killed by the demons, the birds of prey that are sweeping down at them. And that maybe Virgil's intentions aren't exactly pure. At least that's what comes out of that. And they're not much, the passage goes on, different than right now and right away. This is kind of a little bit difficult to unpack, and I should tell you that there are hundreds of explanations for this line. It, it, in the Florentine, what it says is they're not much different than mo 
and Isa, which are two different words that basically mean now. I translated them right now and right away, just so you'd kind of hear a difference between the words, but I could have just said, which are not much different than Mo and Isa, leaving it in the Florentine. Durling claims that Mo is the Florentine dialect for right now, and Isa is the Lombard dialect for right now, which would make it more about Dante and Virgil, Mo and Isa, since Dante speaks Florentine, and as we've now discovered, Virgil speaks in the Lombard dialect. I've never seen anyone else claim that except Robert Durling, and he is a very eminent, or was a very eminent, Dantista. Maybe he's right. If so, it makes the passage even more complicated. But what I would argue is that what's going on here is that our situation is not much more different than this Aesop fable as if you just use two different words for now, uh, right now and right away. Like the Aesop fable is right now, our situation is right away. They're not much different from each other when you compare one case to the other. There's more to be said about that. And you should know that there are dozens of other interpretations of this very complicated phrasing in the Florentine. But I'm giving you mine, and I'm hoping, as I always hope in this podcast, that you will go out ultimately and find other people arguing other things. He says at the end of it, especially if we bring together the beginning and end with close inspection, and this is really what I'm getting to. This passage opens with a call for close reading. It is saying that if you read old texts closely, you can know what's happening to you right now you realize that that's comedy. Comedy is a close reading of Virgil's Aeneid, reinterpreted, refashioned, reformed. This is the very nature of what's going on, and it's so wild that, in fact, this sequence with Baratry, in which Virgil and the Pilgrim disappear for a while as the demons fight, this sequence comes back out with a call to look very closely, to read very closely, to tie what you're reading together with other texts, and that texts comment on current situations and texts comment on other texts. In fact, it gets wilder. The passage goes on, and just as one notion bursts out of another, so another one was born from that one, at which my first fear doubled. This is so crucial. The truth is found in literary forms. That is, I understand my current situation based on what I read, and what I read impregnates me and allows me to birth thoughts that help me interpret my current moment. In this case, my fear got doubled, which should be your response to reading Inferno. If you read Inferno, your fear of hell should be doubled by what Dante is seeing. But more to our point and more to the point that I want to make, what you read forms what you think. It's what the text is saying. That is what you have read, the Bible, comedy, I don't know, J.D. Robb, uh, I don't know, uh, any writer that you've read, Katsuo Ishiguro, uh, Aesop, what you've read. It informs how you see the world and you interpret moments of your existence based on the reading of other texts that have impregnated you with patterns that cause you to reinterpret the world around you. And this is the great hope of comedy. 
that you will find a way from this text to reinterpret your world outside of the reading of it, especially if you pay close attention to the way parallels happen, as he says here, if we bring the beginning and the ending under close inspection. That is, the mouse wanting, help, I can't get across the river, just like Dante in that wood, help, I can't get out of here, Virgil appearing, and the ending, the demons swooping down on the two of them along this embankment as the hawk or the bird of prey swoops down on the frog and the mouse. If you just pay attention and if you just read carefully and you read closely, your vision of the world will take on truth claims. Oh, there's Dante's ultimate hope. Let's pass on in the passage because it's getting very complicated. Having done all that literary analysis, the pilgrim says, I thought, and notice we're at the pilgrim, not the poet. This is solidly in the pilgrim's interior space. I thought, because of us, those demons have been fooled with injuries and ridicule, which means they must feel the same toward us. If their bad intentions get wound into a hank along with anger, the idea here is, is spinning. Uh, it's a weaving metaphor yeah, and a yarn spinning metaphor. If they get bound up with anger, into one hank of yarn. They're going to come at us even more cruelly than a dog's bite, the dog's jaws bite down on a rabbit. At that, I felt a hair with your bristle all over my scalp. So old texts give rise to new interpretations of current experiences when they combine and fuse together. And furthermore, interior spaces give rise to external reactions, hair bristle. Those two ideas are deeply connected. The old texts that you read become your interiority, which help you interpret the external world in the same way that your internal thoughts create your external reactions in the world. That may seem very hackneyed to you, but believe me, in a medieval landscape, these thoughts are quite revolutionary. I felt a hair with your bristle all over my scalp. I kept looking behind us. It's nicely dramatic too. Dante's pulling all kinds of tricks here. I mean, really, honestly, he's making it dramatic. He's making it at the same time high-level literary craziness. He's really pulling all the stops here. I kept looking behind us when I said, Master, unless you can pretty quickly hide the two of us, I'm freaking out about the Malabranca, the evil claws. They must be right behind us. In fact, I imagine them so well that I can hear them on the way. Notice that before Dante has even seen them, he's imagined them. And in fact, that imagination is going to prove true. Why? Because it's based on texts. <laughs> because the text has led the imagination to create the scene that is actually going to happen, which is like Virgil's and comedy, which is like what you read to the events of your own life. Oh, it's so insane. Let's go back to the hair bristling. Pietro di Dante, Dante's own son, in his commentary, connects this passage to one in the Aeneid, uh, in book two, about line 774. It's right during the destruction of Troy. Aeneas is told by his father Anchises to flee, to get out of Troy as it's burning. But Aeneas goes a little way and realizes that he's lost his wife. His wife is not with him. And Aeneas kind of freaks out and he turns back to find her. He wants to go back and find his wife. And her ghost appears in front of him, telling him to go on. Like, I'm gone. 
I'm dead. I'm a ghost. Don't worry about me. You go on. And it's said that at the sight of this ghost of his wife, Aeneas's hair bristles. And Pietro de Dante connects this passage and says, my dad was basically thinking about that passage when he wrote this one. If Dante is thinking about that passage here and that scene as Pietro de Dante claims, then he puts the, uh, what do I want to say, the notion to flee, the plea to flee in his own mouth, not in his father's Virgil's mouth. Remember, in that old scene, it's Aeneas's father Anchises who says, flee, get out of here. Then in this sequence, the Aeneas figure, Dante, is the one saying, let's get out of here, not the father figure, Virgil. It's one more crazy inversion if Pietro de Dante is right about this passage arising out of Aeneid, book two, line about 774 along in there. It's one more crazy inversion. And it is funny that Dante is the one who has read enough to say, hey, I know what can happen in circumstances like I've read Aesop. I know exactly what can happen in circumstances like this because I've found the truth in a previous literary text that helps me imagine what's going to happen to me right now. What does Virgil say? Virgil agrees, but in the strangest of all possible ways. Virgil replies, if I were crafted from leaded glass, and let me just pause and say, mirrors were made in Dante's day by coating glass with a thin coating of lead. So basically he's saying if I were a mirror, it's in the Florentine, it is leaded glass, but he's basically saying if I were a mirror, I could not or I would not mirror your outward appearance any faster than I feel your state of mind. Thus, informing us that this passage really is about interiority and how interiority states are created and hmm, interiority states are created by what you read. Oh man, can it get more meta-literary than this? I would not mirror your outward appearance any faster than I feel your state of mind. Just now, your thoughts have joined up with mine, the self-same attitude and look, so that I've bound everything up to into a single council. Virgil and... <laughs> Dante are together creating one text. You know where I'm going with this. Virgil and Dante are here together creating one text, except, and here, oh my gosh, this is the ultimate literary inversion. It's Virgil who creates the single unified text out of Dante and not the other way around. You would think that it is Dante, our poet, who takes Virgil, I love this so much, I can't love it more, that Dante takes Virgil and creates a unified text out of him, but in the incredibly crazy meta-literary inversions of this passage, it is Virgil who takes Dante's thought and creates a single document, a single council, a single text out of them. It's like this. You read your literary fathers, and they co-mingle with your thoughts, and they create the understanding of the moment. They're making you and your path discoverable or found. They are the ones inside you who are taking your inner thoughts placed there by them in the first place and crafting them into a single it's the it's the wildest thing and it makes your head hurt you probably should have a glass of wine right now or i don't know maybe you should take an edible and you'll get it it's it's this this notion that 
Your interior spaces are created by your literary forefathers. Your literary forefathers and what you've read creates who you are and how you see the world outside. And when you see the world outside, it's actually those literary forefathers who are taking what you're saying and mirroring it back and reforming it into what you now think into a single council and in an action to go ahead. Wild, wild stuff. And Virgil goes on, if it turns out that the slope on our right lets us down, get down into the next pouch, and in fact, we know this. We already knew this from Canto 19, line 35. We know that the outer bank or the bank closer to the wall that Garion flies down is steeper than the inner bank of each pouch or the pouch, the side closer to the central pit. We found that out back in Canto 19 because this whole thing is sloping downward. So the outer, and I'm calling outer here the side of the pouch that faces the big wall that Garion flew down, that side is actually steeper than the more uh, gentle slope of the inner pouch as if you just think about how a slope would occur and each of these pouches in it. So Virgil says if, it, if, it, if we can get down in there, we can. And Virgil's a little hesitant because, you know, I mean, this is the steeper side. And he says we can get away from this imagined hunt. It hasn't happened yet. It's all still up in the mind. And up in the mind, because if you, you saw up in Virgil, I'm not going back there. It's all imagined and up in the mind. It hasn't finished, and yet there it manifests in front of them. He hadn't finished detailing a plan like that when I saw them closing at us with their wings wide open, closing in fast, and with the intent to grab us. And then the whole thing goes off the rails. My master quickly picked me up. The text says, like a mother. A mother? Not a father? Isn't Virgil Dante's father figure? Maternal, not paternal. This, by the way, will pay off big time in Purgatorio, Virgil's maternal instincts. My gosh, when we come to the end of Purgatorio, yes, Virgil will be in Purgatorio with us. When we come toward the end of Purgatorio, this bit of a Virgil as maternal will pay off in ways that I'm sitting here recording this and my skin is got goosebumps all over it. It's a beautiful, unbelievably sad and traumatic moment. And Virgil's maternity, his maternal impulses will be fully revealed. But okay, we're going to save that all for Purgatorio and say my master quickly picking me up like a mother who wakes up at the brouhaha, sees the flames right in hand, picks up her son and gets out without a moment's hesitation. I was speaking to a guy online a while back and I don't want to call his name out because I didn't ask him if I could say this and he said to me, I wish I felt toward Virgil as Dante feels toward him. And I think it's really important to see that. I, I too, don't feel toward Virgil what Dante feels toward him. But this bit that Virgil picks the pilgrim up um, like a mother saving her kid when the house is on fire, it tells us everything we need to know about Dante's relationship with Virgil and maybe more. Because it says he picks him up and gets out without a moment's hesitation, caring more for him than herself to the extent that she doesn't even put on a shift. <laughs> and you realize right there, you suddenly have a picture of Virgil naked. Because if this mother grabs the child up and doesn't even put on a nightshirt or a shift or an overshirt, you know, I mean, an undershirt, doesn't even put on anything to cover her because she's so worried about getting her kid out of the flames, 
just for a momentary second, you have a picture of Virgil naked in your head. And I believe that while Dante is embracing Virgil, he's also smacking him just slightly there because he's just put the thought in your head of Virgil naked, which in medieval thought is very shameful and is very humiliating. It's so amazing that in this passage about Virgil's maternal instincts, Dante still feels the need to smack him just a little bit with the back of a hand, but only a little because it goes on. So Virgil leapt from the rough edge of the cliff and started to slide down the slope on his back. I mean, this thing is so steep that he can't sit up and scoot down on his butt. He's got to basically lie down and slide down the slope with Dante on him, on top of him. He's he's the board. He's the snowboard that Dante's riding down. Except Dante's not standing up. Well, I guess he's not standing up. I hope he's not. Um, he's the snowboard riding down with Dante lying flat on it so they're flying down into the bottom of the sixth pit pit and it says water hasn't ever flowed any faster through a sluice as it rushes from a stream to turn the paddles of a mill's grinding wheel though my master went flailing down that bank still holding me to his chest not and here's where it comes back out again even if we got a little poke at virgil naked not as if i were a fellow traveler or a companion but his son their relationship is so tight. It's like the relationship, uh, I'm not going to put it off on you, I'll put it on me. It's like the relationship I had with my dad who died last year. I had a very come here, get away relationship with my dad. We had a fraught and difficult relationship. And yet at the same time, there was this weird thing that my dad seemed to want to be around me and he wanted me with him at the end despite our incredibly fraught years together. So strange. It was such a strange thing. And so I ended up in these moments in which I wanted to embrace my dad. Let's say I saw him at an airport and, you know, he'd flown to New England to see me. And I wanted to throw my arms around him and hug him and say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And then... Within two minutes, we had the luggage would be coming out and I would be kind of sniping at him saying, are you going to get your bag, you know, or do I have to get your bag for you? It's the complicated dynamics of parent-child relationships played out in the poem itself. But there's more to it than that. And this is the crack up moment of the whole passage. Remember all that song and dance I did at the beginning? <laughs> That song and dance about text create how you see the world, text create blah blah blah. They create your interiority and you see your experiences by passing them through the textual sieves in your brain and blah blah blah. You got to do close reading of other texts in order to understand the current world around you. Remember all that song and dance? Oh, that's so great. Glad I did it because here this passage comes out to two similes the mother, the flames, the getting out, and to the water going sluicing down, turning the paddle. From the mill. This passage turns out with two similes that have no known classical source, which is absolutely hysterical in a literary context. We just had all of this bit about how the, your literary fathers put the thoughts in your head before they even occur in the real world, and then we, <laughs> we have our poet offer us two similes with no known classical source. In fact, I think probably, and this is what I love, 
I think Dante knows exactly what he's doing. He has set this thing up as literary truths, birth, experiential truths, and all that stuff. And then out of the back of it, he comes, and not only does he backhand Virgil just a little bit with showing him naked like that mother who can't even get a shift, he backhands his reader just a little bit by saying, and guess what? I could come up with two similes on my own that have nothing to do with anything I've ever read that explain emotionally and truly and fully the relationship I have with Virgil, not as a fellow traveler, but as a son, and also explain the dramatic sequence of the passage slipping down the slide of the pouch faster than one can imagine to try to get away from these demons who are closing in fast with the intent to grab them. It is so complicated, so wild, that we finally reach the moment of escape and are relieved. The passage ends, the moment Virgil's feet, his feet touch the floor of the chasm. So now they're down at the bottom of the sixth pouch. They've come to the bottom just as they came to the bottom of the third pouch. They come to the bottom where they saw the Pope and the Simoniacs. They come now to the bottom of the sixth pouch to escape the demons. And they look up and there were the demons on the ridge above us. So there they are up there, you know, threatening, probably brandishing their grappling hooks and all that. But Dante says there's no need to gasp out loud because high providence, which had made them the ministers of the fifth ditch, takes away their power of ever leaving it. They can't get out of that fifth ditch and its embankment. They can't get down to us. And this is the escape. And what I think is amazing here is this escape is not Deus ex machina, well, that is God out of the machine, you know, uh, something that flies in from outside and saves our hero at the last second. This is not Deus ex machina. Remember at the walls of Dis? There was deus ex machina. They couldn't get through the walls of Dis. There was all the taunting. There were the demons slamming the door. There was Virgil's worried look. And then here comes Mercury, Christ, I don't know, an angel, some messenger with the wand, and ding, opens the doors. <laughs> and waving the, as he comes, remember, he's waving his hand in front of his face to get rid of the stink of sticks. That's truly deus ex machina. Here, in fact, this is not Deus ex machina. This is built, this escape, on the most fundamental understanding of creation. And that, it strikes me, is part of the developmental change of Inferno. The first time we encounter demons, we need God out of the machine to save us. The second time we encounter demons who are going to threaten us, we, in fact, now more firmly understand the creative order. And we don't need a rescue out of the blue, the cavalry on the charge. But instead, we understand the firmer notion of how creation is put together. And that, in turn, gives us the relief we need from the pursuit of demons. That developmental hypothesis, and let me remind you, I am not religious, so I'm not preaching this as if this is some kind of religious truth, but that developmental hypothesis, I think, is intentional inside of comedy. The escape from demons at Dis versus the escape from demons here, and the difference between the two. Let me say, in this long episode of this podcast, one final thing. This entire sequence of baritry turns out 
to be an incredibly meta literary structure. What had seemed pure story, even to the point that Virgil and Dante disappear as the demons fight in the air over the pitch, what had so much seemed like storytelling and the descent to storytelling, and I pushed this in early episodes in this pouch, that they, oh, look out how story this is. I was pushing it because I knew where we were going. I was pushing it because I knew where we were coming to. What had seemed like pure story ends up being a complex analysis of textual production, which means hmm, that fraud is all about the writing of comedy, just as we knew it was the minute Garion showed up and Dante said, I swear on my very comedy that I saw the beast of fraud. Fraud is bound up in the writing of comedy because what had seemed pure storytelling lands at a place of meta-literary, shall we say, heroics. But we're going to explore that much more in the next episode of this podcast. We're going to take a pause in the next episode, and I want to go back through the entire sequence with the Barretters. I think it's important to see it because now that you've finished it, it's important to see how the thing plays out. It's like a Dostoevsky novel. I keep talking about Dostoevsky because I'm teaching him in a literary discussion group. It's like a Dostoevsky novel. You have to finish it, and then you have to start it again because once you read it the first time through, Karamazov, Demons, The Adolescent Idiot, you really honestly can't make sense of it. You have to know the whole scope of the thing, and then you can look back at the beginning and go, oh, that's why that was like that in the beginning. Dostoevsky is a writer that must be reread, and I think you have to re-see this passage. So we're going to stop and have an episode in which we re-see the whole passage from the top, knowing now where it gets to at its end, and then we'll move on to the sixth pouch where they have set foot down in this evil sixth pouch of fraud and are about to see something that will leave Virgil slack-jawed not just our pilgrim subscribe rate you know all the things you need to do for a podcast to make it successful I would really appreciate that I will see you back here next time for the full scope of the Barretters on Walking with Dante I'm Mark Scarborough see you then see you then